Support for this podcast comes from Progressive. What would you do with an extra $800? Buy a plane ticket? Pay down your student loan? Treat yourself to those shoes you've been eyeing. With Progressive, you could find out. Drivers who switch and save, save an average of $796 on car insurance. Get your quote online at Progressive.com and see how much you could be saving. National average annual car insurance savings by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive in 2019. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Um, My guest today on The Literary Life is Bob Kolker. Uh, Bob is the author of what I think is one of the most profound nonfiction books that I've read in many, many, many years. It's called, the Hidden, it's called Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Uh, Bob is um, he's a best-selling author. He wrote Lost Girls Before, which was named one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of the Year in the year that it came out. He's also a, a, a very, very uh, well-respected journalist who's written many, many different stories for magazines as diverse as New York and others. Bob, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you, Mitchell. It's great to talk to you. How are you doing in this time of lockdown? I'm okay. Things are quiet here. Um, we, we appear to be over the hump here in Brooklyn, uh, numbers-wise, but of course everyone is still wearing masks and my little corner of Brooklyn, everyone's very compliant and staying away from one another. And so uh, thankfully in my home, the whole family's healthy and we're just trying to, um, trying to appreciate the quiet if we can. Well, uh, I have to tell you, this book, uh, Hidden Valley Road, uh, works on so many different levels. Um, as I said, it's the story of a family, a family that um, suffered incredible tragedy. Um, on the exterior, the family is a kind of a, 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 a glory, the, the glorious uh, apotheosis of the American dream. Twelve kids, father was in the Air Force, um, but inside, like most families are, there are hidden secrets, and you brought them out so beautifully. Uh, talk about a little bit about how you met uh, the family and how it came, how you came to write this book. Oh, first of all, thank you. That, that's, a, that's the way that I had hoped the book would be received as a family story first and foremost, although there certainly is a lot about the family illness, which was schizophrenia. About four years ago, I was connected on the phone with the two youngest siblings in the Galvin family. They were the only two girls, uh, they were two of 12 children, and six of their brothers uh, had developed schizophrenia at some point in their lives. And that was just the beginning of their story. On the phone, they were both in their 50s now. Uh, you know, They were telling me about abuse and about a murder-suicide and about uh, a lot of denial and about difficulties with the healthcare system and uh, a sea of tragedies related to the sick brothers themselves. And, and I, as I listened, 
I kept waiting for, um, for some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. And sure enough, the sisters were ready. They were, they had some hope to deliver. They felt like their family was scientifically significant and had been studied by two different research teams. One was at the National Institute of Mental Health, and they wanted to learn more about their family's contribution to science because they felt like it was significant. But more importantly, the two of them had rebuilt their lives and found ways to re-engage in their family on their terms. And to me, that was a hopeful story as well. So to me, it was, as someone who writes about people in crisis a lot and everyday people who are, who are coping with, with hidden difficulties, uh, this was a, a chance to really look at it from an entire family's point of view. And that really is the, the crux of the book. This is a family story where every living family member's point of view is represented. Everyone was interviewed, nobody dropped out. And, and in that sense, I hope to offer something a little different from the many excellent memoirs about mental illness that are out there. And this is quite different than that. It is, and even, you know, I, I imagine that the choices you had to make as a writer um, had to be well considered because you had so much information, I imagine, all of the different interviews that you had, the news stories, uh, the science of it all. Um, so in order to be able to present it in a way that the reader would feel compelled and to know that they weren't just reading a journal entry from, you know, one of the great, you know, um, uh, science magazines, you had to make choices. And the choices you made were brilliant, I should say. The way you structured it, um, where you have a, a chapter about the family and then a chapter about what's happening in the treatment of mental illness. So it becomes a history of the way we have treated mental illness, not just schizophrenia, although mostly schizophrenia, but the way we've treated mental illness. So what kind of research had to go into all of that? And how did you make that choice finally? Well, I, I went into the entire project thinking there would be two questions that would drive the book. The first was, how could all this happen to just one family? Which I guess is really the science question of schizophrenia and what is it? And then uh, the second one was, how did this family even remain a family? How do we even know this? How did the family stay intact? And that was the human story. And so I had that to carry me through the reporting phase, but I was constantly asking myself the question that you were asking, which is, what story is this? Is this a book that's an interesting case study? Is it the story of two girls who have survived family trauma? Is it the story of the sick brothers and everything they went through? Is it the story of the parents? And finally, I realized that the amazing access I had and an ability to speak intimately with with everybody in the family allowed me to give this a really epic treatment so that it felt like an intergenerational family saga like, like East of Eden or, um, or the Corrections or something like that, where, where the mental illness piece of it is also important, but it's in the service of the family story. And to your point, those, those science chapters, um, were, I worked very hard to try to make sure that they weren't just bottled chapters where the chapter begins, here's another fun fact about mental illness that you didn't know. It, what I wanted to do was to make sure that each of those science digressions really weren't digressions at all, but they were meant to raise the stakes for the family story. They were in the service of the family story. The big family story I thought of from the very first conversation with the Galvin sisters was American Pastoral. Um, you know, the perfect all-American 
baby boom era family that implodes um, somewhat inexplicably and mysteriously with horrible, tragic consequences. And, and I thought, oh my God, this is, this is another version of that with far more children. And uh, I, I hope to do justice to that part of the story as well. Well, and you did. And, and what you also did, which was so, I was so appreciative of, is you didn't laden the scientific part of it. It didn't, it didn't detract from the human part of the story. It seemed seamless, actually. Uh, it had the same tone. It had, you know, the way you, you had the same drama in the science of it as you did in the family portion of it. And that's a very hard, hard thing to accomplish, I think. Yeah, where, that was, that I was all. Trying, you know what it was? I wasn't wanting to skip chapters to find out what happened to the family. I really wanted to also skip chapters to find out what happened in the science of it all, which was so interesting to me. Yeah, but there was a lot of trial and error. I would pull those science chapters out thinking, oh, what's the use? How relevant is it anyway? And then I found that as a reader reading my own draft, I needed some, I needed a chance to catch my breath with the, all the horrible uh, storylines happening with the family and that, that those science chapters actually offered a little bit of a, a break to, to, to move things around so that you could you know, clear your throat and clear the air a little bit. So, so let's start at the beginning. What, what, you know, what was the, you know, this is a family of, of 12 kids and it spans, as you write, the entire baby boom generation, really, 1945 to 1965. So when the first uh, hints of schizophrenia or mental illness were hitting the family with Donald, um, the eldest son, what was the view of schizophrenia then? There were really two schools of thought in 1965. There was the, the there were the psychoanalysts who were sort of the next generation after Freud, who for the last 15 years had been convinced that that um, that schizophrenia was something that um, was the result of bad parenting or childhood trauma or something else that happened in the world that it was nurture and that with the right therapy and the right therapist, um, you could actually cure schizophrenia. This is a was a perception that was fueled by things like um, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, which basically tells that story about a, a dedicated, passionate therapist who breaks through the wall of the schizophrenic young girl's you know, barriers that she set up and pulls her back into the real world. It, and this was, this was what psychoanalysts wanted to do. And then there was the whole other half of the psychiatric community, which were the the geneticists and the, the more medical psychiatrists who were convinced that this was a nature illness, that this was genetic, and that the great miracle was Thorazine, and then later on Clozapine, which were these psychoactive uh, drugs that they felt were gonna be the great game changer for schizophrenia. Not only were they going to stop delusions and hallucinations and calm people down, but they were gonna get rid of the huge warehouses full of mental patients that were in the mental hospitals all over the, all over the country. And, and the population of mental hospitals decreased in the 60s significantly because of Thorazine and Clozapine. Unfortunately, those drugs were not miracle drugs for most people and they weren't a cure, um, and so neither was therapy either. And so it, it, it they, did, they tended to just mask the symptoms, right? Right, they, they exactly. They were, you know, I don't want to sell them too short because there are people whose lives have benefited from them, 
but uh, quite often it, they were just merely symptom suppressors. Um, and so you aren't turning back the clock for those patients. You're not adding to their functionality. You're just making them more manageable patients. But prior to that, even prior to uh, 65, back in the 40s, prior to Kennedy's law or Kennedy's edict, that you know there was the lobotomies that mm -hmm. were happening. There was it was a there were torture chambers basically in those days. That's right. So the psychoanalysts out there who were blaming mom and dad, but especially mom for schizophrenia, they were they they really felt like they were the good guys because they were doing battle with eugenicists and with lobotomy people and with people who uh, were treating. Uh, psychiatric patients like they were lesser than human beings and were guinea pigs worthy of, of strange testing and of euthanizing and sterilizing. So they were looking at them as human beings. But as so often happens, it was a case of um, two different camps, each being equally wrong uh, um, until finally we get a little bit more clarity going on. And that, that complexity actually drew me to the subject even more, that, that you could have people who were so passionate and so convinced that they were right doing battle with one another, but in fact, the, the real truth about the disease was decades away. I don't, I don't want to give any spoiler alerts and, or spoilers, but we should, um, we should talk, I'd love to talk about the family itself. So why don't you describe a little bit of, uh, you know, Don Sr. and Mimi and, and, and who they were exactly, and what, what was their expectation, and how did they come to have 12 children? Well, they were, they were a bright, intelligent young couple. They fell in love as teenagers and married just as, uh, just as Don was about to go off to war at the end of World War II. By the time he came back, they had a son waiting for him. Um, their first of 12, so 1945 was the first Galvin child. And then he, he moved over from the Navy to the Air Force and they became one of the first Air Force families in the country in this new division of the armed services that was out in the West in Colorado and they were a part of the American century. There was an air of confidence and triumphalism about them. Mimi was brilliant, but had given up her college education to follow her husband around the country as a military wife and that was frustrating for her. She also was a cultured New Yorker brought out to a dusty one horse town and that frustrated her as well. There was no culture for her to consume. And, uh, and Don uh, really wanted to be a professor and a political science professor. He didn't really want to be a military man, so he was frustrated as well. And so they sought lives of distinction in other ways. They became falconers. They, they embraced this ancient noble art of falconry and they had falcons hanging around the house with the children and set up muses outside and and later on, Don flew the Falcons at Air Force football games and trained the cadets in falconry. So he and got his picture in the paper. And he got, he got the Air Force Academy to have the mascot be the Falcon, right? If I'm exactly. He, yes, yeah, he, it's there in the Air Force archives. It's confirmed that he's the one that sent the first letter. Other people were suggesting other mascots for the Air Force, but he said it should be the Falcon. You're placing the Academy right here in Colorado Springs where there are some amazing hawks that are right here for the, for the training, and this would be wonderful. And they, they took him up on it. Um, and they, that was a that, nice that, surprise that, to read about all the falconry in it. That was really interesting as well. And it's not exactly irrelevant because it, 
it's a it's about taming the natural world. It's about domesticating something wild. It's this idea that if you work hard enough and follow all the procedures, you're going to get an, a desired result uh, each and every time. And I think Don and Mimi really believe that, like a lot of people in their generation. But what happens when the worst happens? When an asteroid hits, essentially, and and unexplained things start happening in your home? How do you how do you handle it? And this part, I think, a lot of us can relate to either either people who are are from the baby boom generation or know about that or or anyone who feels like they have um they have they have kept suffering at bay and then suddenly something bad happens and takes them by surprise how do you react and don and mimi were scandalized we had just talked to you and i about how this was a time where parents got blamed for mental illness so they weren't going to talk to doctors about it um they weren't going to damage Don's career or the chances of the other children. There was a long period of denial and then things got worse. And then more and more kids started getting sick and they wondered if it was contagious. Um, it, it was a, a horrifying but secretive period for the family until finally they couldn't keep the secret any longer. Yeah, and they couldn't keep it because of a very tragic circumstance that occurred with one of their, one of their sons, which, which was stunning when I read it. Um, how, how, I know that you came, someone introduced you to, to Lindsay, I guess it was, Lindsay. And, and to Margaret at the same time. Margaret at the same time. So, um, how was it that these two young girls, who were the babies of the family, who, you know, were abused by the, by the older brothers, and, you know, they went through all the travails of what that family brought. How was it? that they were able to still be so concerned about what happened to their brothers. Do you know what I mean? They were, they, there was something in their spirit that was just so, so remarkable. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to quite imagine uh, someone having that level of, um, that level of forgiveness in a sense. One of the luxuries of, of being able to do a full-length book about them was to be able to get them at every, every little moment where their thinking on that subject changes and modulates, because certainly in the beginning, all they wanted was to leave their family. Lindsay, we've been calling her Lindsay, but her name is actually Mary, and she actually decided to call herself Lindsay as soon as she left home as a way of sort of reinventing herself and trying to forget the past. But then we see how something draws them back home um, and sometimes they aren't even sure what it is. And then you see the therapy they go through. And I, I drill down hard in those sections to try to make it clear that this was not like six sessions and an epiphany, like in the movies, right. this was some serious work that they were doing, each, each sister in their own way, different kinds of therapy, where they were able to, to suddenly confront the truth rather than run from it. But before that time, they are running hard from the truth. One of them has a has an ill-fated marriage that she thinks is going to save her and like give her a new family where the old family had failed her so much. Um, it, it, you know, another one changes her name, as we said. They, they try very hard to leave, but then they're brought back for different reasons in different ways. The best thing about telling their stories this way is that they each are processing pretty much the same traumas, only completely differently. And that was a surprise to me. I thought it was gonna be a story about two sisters banding together to help one another. And that is partly true. But in, in fact, 
by the end, they each are grasping and, and dealing with the truth in different ways. And I think that readers can look at that and say, well, maybe I'm more like this one, or maybe I'm more like that one. And I try very hard to give both of their rationales as sensitively as possible. So also with a story like this, kind of, it's almost like a Rashomon story. How do you detect, how do you decide who the um, reliable narrators are? How, was that a problem for you? Um, certainly. It, it, there was a lot of um, talking to everybody and then going back and running different things by people. The, the initial issue was, was just nailing down a chronology. Everyone talked about a certain Thanksgiving where something dramatic happened, but nobody could tell me with certainly certainty what year it was. Um, the same way that I couldn't tell you about something that happened on a Thanksgiving 40 years ago. I mean, it's just not something people keep in their heads. So there was a lot of that sort of detective work where I was trying to, to really figure out exactly when things happened. And then once I secured a chronology, I was able to get more authoritative about things. But really, um, I did foreground some children more than others. You'll, you'll see that, that Lindsay and Margaret and, and Michael are often in, up front. And then two of the mentally ill siblings as well, Peter and Donald, because I had an excess of medical records for them and lots of notes from different sessions, I really had lots of material that helped bring them to life as well. And then other brothers um, are sort of folded in to offer perspective in, as sort of satellite uh, members. So that, that was, from a workability perspective, that was important. Also, uh, not to be glib, but I read War and Peace, <laughs> uh, you know, which has so many characters and goes on for so long. And I thought, like, how does it work? How does he do it? And I, I you know, I came away reassured reading War and Peace that you could have a very long chapter focusing on just one of the characters and you wouldn't be nervous as a reader saying, what's happening with everybody else right now? You trusted as a reader that in a future chapter, you would come back and find out what Natasha's up to. What, um, what I really loved, I mean, I haven't really seen it anywhere else, but I really loved it. And it is a bit Russian is that idea at the beginning of the chapters, you listed all the names of all the characters and you highlighted who that chapter was about. That was really, really helpful as a reader as well. Thanks, I'm uh, probably too proud of that because I came up with it. I was inspired by something my agent, Chris Paris Lamb came up with with Lost Girls with my previous book where he had an idea of how to use graphics in the beginning of each chapter to illustrate who we were talking about because there were a lot of characters in Lost Girls as well. A lot of real life people, I should say, in Lost Girls. So with this book, I, um, it dawned on me that you could actually, you could follow it, you, you, you could have the, I mean, as I'm writing the book, I had the cast of characters up on a bulletin board to keep track of them. Right. So why not give that to the reader? At the beginning of every chapter, in age order, you have the parents and the children, and then you boldface who that chapter is focusing on, almost like it's your, your, your program to a ball game and you know who's up at bat next. And, and I thought that would be helpful, and I'm really pleased how it turned out. You should be. It was brilliant. A brilliant idea. So tell me what it was like and, and when in the process you were able to speak with Mimi. Um, I spoke with Mimi almost right away. When I talked to the two sisters, I said uh, that it might be quite likely that this book would be impossible because I wouldn't want to do it without everyone being all right with it. So I pr proposed that I get on the phone with everybody in the family gradually, maybe once a week for an hour each. Uh, just to get to know them and hear what they think about the idea of a book like this. And I would also speak with medical researchers in that time too, just to see what there was to know 
whether this family really was as special as they, they seemed to be. And of course, my first call after the, the sisters was to Mimi. So I, she was very early and she was very eager to talk. She had not always been eager to tell her story, but she was ready now, probably because um, it seemed clear now that there was some genetic information about the family that seemed to really show for sure that this was nature and not nurture. And that was a huge validation for her. And uh, so she was ready to, to be a part of that conversation. But, but of course she was 91 or so, and she was very sharp, and, but also um, very, very accustomed to deflecting unpleasant conversations. And so, um, uh, so it was hard to really talk to her about difficult stuff until I met with her in person and the sisters were there with me and we all sort of helped her come around to talking about the shame she had felt for so long. No, and and I, I want to stress to the to the to the readers out there that this was a very accomplished family on the exterior. I mean, uh, uh, Don Senior and Mimi as well. They were both very artistically inclined. Um, they created, you know, when I, I I went to school at the University of Colorado, and I remember I remember Dance West, which was their dance group that they created. They created the Consortium of the Arts that really helped to um, to bring to give grants to artists all throughout that region. Um, and he was the head of that, I believe, right? He he ran it. He was the executive director, and so they ran in very privileged circles and circumstances. And I think that that caused them, at the same time, to be very. Uh, uptight and quiet about what was happening in their family, I believe. That's a perfect way of describing it, for sure. They themselves were not wealthy, but things were really taking off for them in terms of Don's career. Once he left the military and went to work for the Western States Organization, he had the ear of governors. He was lobbying Washington. He was dispersing grants to arts groups all over the American West. They were at parties with Georgia O'Keeffe in Santa Fe. It, it was... It was uh, a heady time for them just as the family was collapsing privately. And um, that to me was a, a stunning thing to contemplate. And they themselves did not have the resources when their family got sick. They needed the kindness of, of at least one other family who they knew and they needed the state. The, the kids were in out of the state mental hospitals. So it, the, this was not a family that was sending people to the Menninger Clinic or, or anything like that. They right. were, and, and, they, and again, the nature versus nurture thing, you think of them as military folks, so you think that, oh, yeah, well, they were just uptight. They were too restrictive. They were all of that. But actually, they were quite liberal, right? They were quite, they were quite hands-off on their kids. The kids were in rock bands. The kids were smoking dope, and they weren't coming down hard on them. They were very, it was a very antithetical, you know, it was a Vietnam War period, and the father was somewhat against it, if I'm not mistaken, even though he wasn't vocally against it. So it really points out the nature nurture thing even more so that, you know, it goes against the grain of what you might think if you were going on the side of the, the, the nurture part of it. You think, Oh, they were just too controlling and this, that, and the other. Yeah. There was an interesting mix because they, they certainly enjoyed having a uniform appearance. You know, the kids had a dress code when they were little and they were all altar boys and, and the, the house had to be clean. But then once they were teenagers, they really were like everyone else in their town. The, the kids sort of had the run of the place. It was a progressive era for, area for its time. 
all of us who grew up, you know, around those times in the 60s, we all knew the house on the block that you never went to, right? That your parents would never allow you to go to. No, you can't stay overnight over at that house. And that was their house because, you know, the, the, adults in the, the adults in the neighborhood understood just how dangerous it was, I think. Yes, I, I've gotten lots of emails since the book's been out by people who lived on the street saying, we always knew something was going on. You know, we, I knew a couple of the kids, but we were never told never to talk to the other ones. Yeah, and yeah, thanks for filling in the blanks. There was a lot of that since the book has come out. So, so equally as uh, stunning of their story is the stunning of, is medicine at the time, is the stunning story of what happened with this nature versus nurture, trying to, to deal with mental illness, you know, drug therapies, this, that, and the other. And was it genetic? Was it not? And you bring up a character who I really, uh, uh, not a character, she's a real person, someone I really found appealing in what she was setting out to do. But, but she was thwarted ultimately. And that's Lynn DeLisi, Dr. Lynn DeLisi. Lynn DeLisi is one of two researchers who really have known the Galvin family in one way or another for decades and have uh, known from an early date that this family was significant toward the study of mental illness. Um, they both came up as doctors in the 70s, and uh, Lynn DeLisi was at the National Institute of Mental Health at a time where there were still some people training doctors saying that mom and dad were the cause of mental illness. And she really um, went in the other direction and was convinced that it must be genetic, that there must be a biological cause for this illness. It just didn't make sense to her that bad parenting would be the cause. There was one researcher at the time actually who said, that if bad parenting caused any mental illness, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. It just, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense. Anyway, she, she pushed forward on this front when, when most of her colleagues were going after things like depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder, where they knew they could get more traction. The issue with schizophrenia was there was this huge stigma. The, the constituency, the people who suffered from it really couldn't advocate for themselves because the, a lot of them were on drugs that had muffled their ability to really talk and advocate for themselves. Um, Is there a selection maybe that you'd like to read from a little bit, just to give people a sense of the tone of the book? No real institutional will to move forward on schizophrenia. So she was going against the green in that way. And then she was going against the green in deciding that families like the Galvins might hold the key to schizophrenia. Now it, it might seem intuitive to think, well, a family with a lot of schizophrenia in it must have something to teach us. But this was a time when, when we were getting more and more information about the genome, about, about genetic information for all people. And it became a sort of dogma that the more you understood the, the way that the human genome related for the entire population, the more... In the prologue, I write, um, the dozen children in the Galvin family perfectly span the baby boom. Donald was born in 1945, Mary in 1965. Their century was the American century. Their parents, Mimi and Don, were born just after the Great War, met during the Great Depression, married during World War II, and raised their children during the Cold War. In the best of times, Mimi and Don seemed to embody everything that was great and good about their generation, a sense of adventure, industriousness, responsibility, and optimism. Anyone who has 12 children, the last several against the advice of doctors, is nothing if not an optimist. 
As their family grew, they witnessed entire cultural movements come and go. And then all the Galvins made their own contribution to the culture as a monumental case study in humanity's most perplexing disease. The idea of, that we now sort of accept that schizophrenia is a developmental disorder, which is to say that we inherit a vulnerability, some of us, toward developing extreme mental illness. Um, but that, that vulnerability may never happen, or it might happen. We, it, there's no knowing. So we're back to nature and nurture. But Daniel Weinberger says something interesting, which is that all this genetic uh, um, information that we have now really is confirmation at long last that it is mostly nature, that, 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 that we, we shouldn't be looking at, at parenting style or really anything, or anything else in the environment as the smoking gun that causes mental illness. It is genetic. So the big difference is we have the ground beneath our feet now to actually start the real work of understanding this illness. We also understand that it's not one illness, it's a syndrome, a collection of symptoms that we've given one name to. So a generation from now, the word schizophrenia might fall out of vogue and there might be six different brain disorders, each with discrete symptomologies that we've pinpointed. Among kids today, I don't think that the stigma is, is as uh, pronounced as it was back then. I sure hope so. And I think there are signs of that. I think that because of other neurodiversity issues that we're more hip to now, like autism and anxiety and ADHD, we understand that there are brain disorders out there that are not that are not value neutral that they don't mean that you're a bad person so we're we're steps away from really universally seeing that with schizophrenia it's just such a dramatic illness it transforms you so entirely and it makes you so unpredictable and so strange to your loved ones that it's a hard thing to get past uh laura miller wrote something in salon which i think talks to you as a writer and um it, it, she's really right when she says, it takes a rarer, more humane and imaginative writer to show the dented magnificence and universal sorrow within ordinary lives and make you realize how much more they are worth. And you do that so masterfully here. And I, I can't thank you enough for it. Uh, that, that quote from Laura Miller really blew me away and it still does. I, I do think the best nonfiction out there and the best journalism out there helps us understand people we never thought we'd be able to understand and make, makes the world a little smaller. And, uh, and, and I'm, of course, trying to do that with my books and really modeling myself after some of the greats. So I'm really glad that this book is connecting the way it is. Uh, who are some of the greats in your mind uh, along those lines? Who are some of the great nonfiction, creative nonfiction writers? Talking about ordinary people who are part of a world that you may never have discovered otherwise are Catherine Boo, who wrote Behind the Beautiful Forevers, yeah. and Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc, who wrote Random Family about, about welfare mothers in the Bronx. She embedded for 10 years with, with people yeah. and just beautifully written books. And then the early nonfiction work of David Simon and Ed Burns, The Corner and Homicide do, do that as well in, in ways that, that keep you reading but help you you know, sort of walk in the shoes of people who you never would necessarily have run into otherwise. Bob, where are you from originally? I grew up in suburban Maryland. We're a Baltimore family, but not the wire Baltimore, more like diner Baltimore. <laughs> but, the, but I grew up in the burbs, but my whole family is in Baltimore. And then I came to New York to come to college in the late 80s and I stayed. So I've been in New York for decades now. Where did you study? What college were you at? 
I went undergrad at Columbia at a time where it was still easy to get into Columbia. It was the, it was 1987. So uh, yes, I've always loved writing. I didn't know what form it would take. I really was writing about the arts and was thinking I'd be some sort of arts critic for a very long time. Uh, I came up in the, as a kid in the eighties where the people who wanted to be journalists wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein or Sam Donaldson or a foreign correspondent. And I didn't connect with that per, on a personal level. Oh, um, but then in my 20s, I discovered community reporting and, and really micro-reporting, like local reporting. And those were my first jobs for little neighborhood weeklies in Manhattan. And I was writing about everyday people as they were struggling with, you know, fighting the local supermarket because of litter or worried about a drug war on their block or running for public office. But I was returning to them week after week after week. And the narrative aspect of it too really appealed to me. And that's when I started to lock in and start reading Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and Gay Talese and, uh, you know, seeing, seeing what, what great narrative journalism can do and really starting to get some goals. Bob, I want to thank you for being on The Literary Life, uh, discussing your remarkable new book, Hidden Valley Road, which you can get from your local indie bookstore or booksandbooks.com or bookshop.org, which benefits independent bookstores all across the country. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. It's been a thrill to talk about this with you, Mitchell. Thanks so much.